0: good morning welcome back it's Pastor Lars here from Lord of Grace Lutheran Church here in Marana uh, welcome to the last of these episodes on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's religious religionless Christianity I realized that as I was setting this one up that this was the end of the writings that he had made along this line of thought and so this will be it Uh And he begins today to give a few, maybe answers, I don't know if you would say answers, but he starts to suggest a little bit what it might look like, what his idea of religionless Christianity would look like. So, uh, we'll take a look, we'll walk through, again, we'll have about five slides, I think, that we'll walk through, or selections from his book, uh, Letters to Prison. So, Letters from Prison, so I'm going to move over, we'll get the slides set up here, and... uh, since we're a nice low te- we're a low-budget operation, uh, it's not CSI Miami where I can get everybody cut and spliced back and forth. Uh, so uh, here we go. Uh, we might as well just jump in with that first, the first slide. There it starts with he must therefore, and uh, do we have that up? All right. Here we go. I'll read that through. He must, and this is the uh, this is the Christian. The new christian in a secular world that's who he is must therefore really live in a godless world without attempting to gloss over or explain its ungodliness in some religious way or other he must live a quote secular life and thereby share in god's suffering he may live a secular life as one who has been freed from false obligations religious obligations and inhibitions to be a Christian does not mean to be religious in a particular way to make something of oneself a sinner a penitent or a saint on the basis of some method or other but to be a man not a type of man but the man that Christ creates in us all right I'll try to unpack this as best I could make sense of it I will admit that this part challenged me the most. I felt the less, I feel sort of the least secure in uh, explaining it, but well, well, what do I think's going on here? He must uh, therefore live in a godless world uh, without attempting to gloss. That's an interesting line that he uses there. Uh, I'm not entirely certain what it means, but here's my guess, that what he's talking about is that we have to live in the secular world, and accept it as a secular world that it is, and accept that it is truly secular, and not uh, try to come up with a religious explanation to explain things the way they are. I think of, you know, kind of some of the slogans like, you know, everything happens for a reason, or it's all part of God's plan, or, you know, it just might look like God isn't really around it might look like he isn't but he really is and you just have to see the ways that we come up with religious explanations for secular things and bonhoeffer is saying that you sort of need to really embrace this right we're we're back to sartre saying you have to actually embrace that there's that there's death and there's nothing and and not be afraid of that don't try to gloss over it you have to own it and yeah there's a real empty uncomfortableness in doing that. But he's saying that if you're gonna live in the secular world, you have to embrace it as it is and not try to, not try to find some way to preserve the old worldview underneath what appears. That's what I see in this. Then he keeps going. Uh, he may live a secular life, and being freed from false religious obligations and inhibitions. And I will say it's important to catch that word false That it isn't all religious obligations and inhibitions are necessarily wrong. That's not what I see. That there is a, uh, it's the fakeness we want to get rid of. Um, And then uh, that a a secular life, going back a a line, thereby share in God's, he must live a secular life and thereby share in God's sufferings. Live a secular life and share in God's sufferings and this is going back a few a few weeks where he talked about how you know really what, that it isn't just uh it, that god himself suffers in a secular world right jesus goes into our world and the key point here is that he suffers in this world because god does not supernaturally magically intervene to save him and so a person living in a secular world Uh, is also going to share in God's sufferings and embrace the cross completely. And that's a theme that Bonhoeffer brings up in his books over and over and over. Uh, The cross to him is really not something that's just sort of a, you know, we look at that and go, oh, isn't that nice? Look what Jesus did for us. But the cross is the way of life. And what does it mean to live the way of life of the cross? It means to embrace the challenge of living in this world without expecting that God will rescue you somehow. And so it's interesting that he calls what that is, in in many ways, part of a secular life. Um, Now, it's also interesting too, I think, as a definition of a secular life is how different this is from the usual definition that I know I always kind of pick on. Uh, Maybe it's a little bit of a cliche, but I do hear it enough. i'm a good person right usually when i encounter someone who's very secular uh, who embraces some version of i don't know or i have no religion or i'm spiritual but not or something like that and you sum up their ethical understanding at the end of the day it's something like i'm a good person i just try to be a good person isn't that what really counts that we all just be a good person and you know then i always say okay well what do you what do you mean by good person? How do you define that? You know, I'm not, I'm not out hurting people. I just mind my own business. And, you know, I, I, I give to charity occasionally. And, and uh, you know, and to me, that has always seemed a little bit shallow, uh, you know, that we operate in larger systems of power and domination. And there are many ways in which we can inflict vast harm on people in ways that aren't obvious, like the, uh, uh, example I got from a friend who says you know well I look at secular people and they think they're good they're not kicking puppies okay we're not kicking puppies and killing people that's a low bar right but am I paying my employees a living wage am I uh, polluting the environment through my business am I supporting dictators and tyrants through the way I consume energy those are deeper questions that go way beyond good person. Good person just basically means you, you aren't actively out hurting people and are generally minding your own business. But that's not the cross. If Jesus wanted to follow that, I mean, if that was the whole point of what he did, to just be a good person, he could have just stayed back in Nazareth and fixed his boats, you know, that wouldn't have, and uh, you know, and I'm sure Jesus never ran around Nazareth kicking puppies. Uh, or actively killing people but there were, he I really do believe he felt there was so much more to his life than just avoiding the obvious bad you know he went into Jerusalem embracing uh, embracing a sense of sort of protest against Rome that he knew was going to get himself killed but that was a choice he walked into it deliberately that so much more that there's so much more to that than just yeah, you know, I changed my Facebook status and gave a few bucks to the, you know, latest tornado thing, um, and so I, you know, I, I think that there's an, there's an interesting contrast there, and it's a good contrast, because often, right, the debate, the, the ethical debate is, boils down to some sort of version of, you know, without God, we're all just basically monsters, and we need religion to teach us ethics, and then the You know, the atheist responds with, I can be a good person without God. And they write a whole book. I'm good without God, right? And then the religious person says, well, what about Joseph Stalin? And then the atheist says, well, he's just an exception to the rule. You know, I'm not out killing people. And so the whole debate becomes whether we can control our urge to kick puppies and rape and kill all day long. And that's missing so much of it. I love what Bonhoeffer is saying here is that ethics needs to go beyond just sort of avoiding the bad into embracing embracing a good that's going to involve personal suffering you know this is the going out and embracing the risk for the larger cause which is what he did right he he deliberately did that he stepped he went back to germany when he was in america he could have been safe and taught at union seminary in new york and been a good person You know, not walking up and down the streets of New York, kicking puppies and killing people. And, um, you know, he could have been a perfectly good person, but he felt that being a follower of Jesus involved so much more than that. So he went back to Germany, walked back into the danger. All right, keep going. Does not mean, this does not mean to be religious in a particular way, to make something of oneself, now, what does this mean, to be religious in a particular way? Notice again, and I'll bring this up over and over and over, what he brings up as defining, defining yourself in a religious way is you're a sinner, a penitent, or a saint. You know, so if I, if I sort of uh, define myself you know, that as a sinner, then I'm a person who needs a sacrifice to redeem me. If I'm a penitent, I need to perform services, uh, Hail Marys, sacrifices, whatever, to atone for myself. If I'm a saint, my good works are above and beyond that. And Bonhoeffer is saying that that, those are the religious definitions, right? You don't need to, that's, that's what they're defining as being religious. It's not Do you use a hymnal? Do you wear robes? Do you use a liturgy? Do you have bishops? You know, do you say spoken scripted prayers instead of prayers from the heart? You know, do you worship without speaking in tongues? All these sort of things that, again, I think they're probably a very American way, but I I feel like I need to keep bringing this up over and over. Bonhoeffer didn't come to create robeless christianity uh, and liturgy less christianity he's dealing with this at a theological level that's much deeper this is making myself into something in a religious category so that i can be saved in a religious sense and he's saying that in the new way to be a christian isn't to make someone into i don't need to make myself into a sinner so that i can find forgiveness it is to embrace the life that god has put in front of me right now right to type to be the type of man the type of person that God has created me to be Uh, and uh, so all right let's go on to the next slide here read through that through it is not the religious act that makes the Christian but participation in the sufferings of God in the secular life That is metanoia, not in the first place thinking about one's own needs, problems, sins, and fears, but allowing oneself to be caught up into the way of Jesus Christ, into the messianic event, thus fulfilling Isaiah 53. Therefore, believe in the gospel, quote-unquote, or, in the words of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29, and he says in parentheses there, By the way, Jeremias has recently asserted that the Aramaic word for lamb may also be translated servant, very appropriate in view of Isaiah 53. Ooh, we're going, we're going right into the Old Testament here. So what is he talking about? Uh, it's not the religious act, but the participation in the sufferings. This is becoming how he's defining it. The Christian participates in sufferings. The Christian isn't the one who's going, uh, oh my gosh, I had a dirty thought, I better say five Hail Marys. Oh my gosh, I had a dirty thought, because that's always what it is, right? Um, I had a dirty thought, Uh, I better be, you know, I better hope that somebody sacrifices, uh, that there's the right sacrifice, or uh, oh, I realize that I've been doing all these bad things, now I know that I need to have a savior kind of thing. That's not what he's talking about. To him, the definition of the Christian is somebody who deliberately participates in suffering. But then he has this interesting way he words it. Uh, he he talks about getting caught up in the way of Jesus, getting caught up. So that, that and I had to think about that because are you embracing suffering as an active act, or are you feeling like God is somehow sweeping you into the suffering, and I had to think about that for a while, and I'm not sure Bonhoeffer has completely made that separation or that distinction. You know, I'm thinking of Palm Sunday. Partly we just had Palm Sunday, but you see Jesus, he's going into Jerusalem, so that's a choice. Jesus is saying, I am going to go into this, you know, place I'm going to go into the city where the Roman soldiers are, where Pilate is, where Herod is, where all the problems are, where there's a huge legion stationed looking for problems. So in a sense, he's going into there very deliberately when he could have avoided it. But on the other hand, as he's coming in on Palm Sunday, the crowd kind of gathers and sweeps him up and he doesn't resist them. I always wonder why didn't he resist them if he knew where it was going, but is that kind of what bonhoeffer is talking about that one also allows oneself to be swept up into it to be caught up into it that and does that not imply that god is working somehow that god is active that you know is that what god does in the world instead of intervening in our world to you know help us uh get a promotion does god intervene in our world to move us sweep us up into meaningful acts of suffering and does that not make god active too Uh, i'm not maybe he hasn't gotten that far and made that distinction but it's something that i got to thinking a lot about Uh, you know this idea of uh, being caught up it's a very spiritual way of looking at it you know where you make yourself in a sense passive and allow the spirit to pull you into things and you allow the spirit to move you right and that instead of you trying to be trying to be the actor Um, which is what you know many saints would do and i don't mean to diss somebody like francis who said i am going to be like christ because christ said be like me um he's absolutely right that's what he said and then he goes out to literally follow christ in every way he can you know he said be poor and sell your possession so he sells his possessions that kind of thing but bonhoeffer i think is thinking about taking it in a different way because in a sense while all of Francis's work and all the poverty and stuff that he embraced clearly did seem to be very much along the lines of Jesus, there really wasn't any sort of social change component in it. He wasn't out uh, challenging the authority of the Venetian uh, council. I don't know who ran it at that time. You know what I mean? He didn't go marching into Rome to question the, the, the way in which the Pope was behaving his understanding of being a saint was very, very personal. It was at a deeply personal, individual level. Maybe that's what makes Francis so popular. But Francis was not the social justice activist who was going to march into the city. And uh, you know, that wasn't what he was getting swept up in. And I think that's rightly what Bonhoeffer is trying to direct our way from. I think a lot of the saints, and this has been a criticism that's been leveled before, is that the saints through their all their exuberant acts of personal piety, allow us, in a sense, to have a model of what looks like the ideal Christian faith of carrying the cross without that social justicey edge of carrying the cross that brings with it suffering. Not to say Francis didn't endure a lot of suffering in attempting to do what he did. But it wasn't like the medieval, You know lord of whatever principality he was in you know went and performed some weird medieval torture method on him for criticizing as is something that happened a lot in the 1100s so uh that but that's an interesting idea to be caught up into the way of jesus i just like that phrase i'm not sure i understand it all but i want to sit on it a little bit going back one line this is metanoia metanoia is a greek word That's what we usually use when we say repentance. There must be repentance. And metanoia is what gets translated as repentance. But repentance for us, again, if you think of how it works in the popular imagination, repentance is, oh yeah, I was doing drugs and jacking cars. Now I realize I shouldn't do drugs and jack cars. So I'm going to change my ways, which is a good thing. I'm, I'm glad you stopped doing drugs and jacking cars, right? That's a good thing. Metanoia, though, is a Greek word that talks about changing one's mind. So if you wanna pick it apart, cause I'm a Greek nerd and I'm gonna pick it apart. Meta, right? We talk about meta, a thing within a thing, right? It's, it's sort of below. Metaphysics is what is below physics, beyond physics. And then noia comes from nous, which is where we get mind, thinking, thought. So it's, in a sense, the thought beneath the thought is kind of what metanoia is. And so it's a transformation in your thinking, but it's a transformation in almost your way of thinking. Maybe you could say, uh, how would we work it in philosophy today? Categories. You are, uh, it is altering the categories of your thinking. It is altering the paradigms of your thinking. It's, and you know, yes, altering the paradigms of your thinking should motivate you to quit, you know, uh, doing drugs and jacking cars. But I think this is a deeper thing here that he's talking about. And so for Bonhoeffer, the religious act says is participation in the sufferings of God. This is the deeper change in our mind that affects all the other things. You know, you should go from Okay, I'll use that same example again. Doing drugs and jacking cars and not saying, now I'm better, but go from jacking cars to now I must find where there is suffering in the world and go and embrace that. And usually that's not how the story goes. Usually the testimonial is, I did this, I was miserable, I became a Christian, I'm better. Again, I'm glad you're better, but Bonhoeffer would say, okay, now that you're better, are you have you gone from a way of life of embracing yourself or to embracing the sufferings of others that's a metanoia right and uh, and he says not in the first place thinking about one's own needs problems sins and fears right this is all the very personal this is the personal piety personal morality stuff Right. It isn't just me changing my own personal moral behavior, which is good. But morality does tend to be excessively focused around abstention. I I really think so. If you look at old pious Christianity, I I come out of the Lutheran strand and um, my father didn't particularly teach this, but it was kind of in the air in Scandinavian Lutheranism that the definition of a Christian was the person who abstained from pleasures in order to receive future rewards. And that piety is all about personal sins and personal morality, and that's usually defined by giving things up. You know, if it feels good, it's probably bad for ya. You know, and the world is telling you to embrace all those pleasures, but the pleasures take you down a bad road you know, and so what we need to do is come to Jesus by naming those personal sins that we do, all the the, the peccadilloes and dirty thoughts, and put all that stuff away, and, um, you know, you come out of that, you can get a really warped view of Christianity, and you really have to sit and ask yourself, and this is the question I asked myself, because of course as a teenager, you love all you can think about is indulging in all those things, right, That they're, that the Uh, pietists are telling you not to, but I just had to ask myself, is this why Jesus died? To convince us to abstain from vice? I mean, is that really why he died? To keep us from drinking too much? To uh, save us from you know, pop an oxy at the rave. Did, 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 did he really die to keep us to have to limit the number of sexual partners we have? That's why he died? He couldn't have just said that? Uh, and, and, and that's what it is? And with that vision of sin being so deeply moralistic and individualistic, it takes away the whole framework of having anything to do with social justice, politics, you know economics all that stuff's been taken away and what i part of why i love bonhoeffer and gra, what gravitated me to this was the fact that he's pretty clear that this isn't about that that the cross is not about you know personal needs problems sins and fears this is about something much deeper and i've really tended to embrace that that question of you know when you look at uh, what is the, what constitutes the Christian life, you know? Is the chain smoker at the rave who cares for his neighbor a better Christian than the uptight, rigid, you know, prudishly abstained uh, person sitting on the porch pointing a finger, at, there we go, pointing a finger at uh, every, all those loose people out there, you know, um, you know, I came to the conclusion that that with Bonhoeffer, that it really is much more about what we do than what we avoid, right? It's much more—it's the sufferings we embrace for the greater good, more than the little peccadillos that we avoid. That's not to say those things we should all go ahead and cheat. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying personal morality shouldn't exist. I'm just saying that Jesus didn't just die for that. All right. Um, anything else here? Okay. Uh, Jesus Christ into the, is to be caught up into the messianic event, thus fulfilling Isaiah 53. This is the verse about the suffering servant. Behold my servant who suffers. And that has been seen as a prophecy of the Messiah for centuries. And he's saying that that's sort of the key. It is the suffering that makes the servant. That's the definition of servant. Therefore, believe in the gospel, or as John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. And I wish I knew enough about Aramaic to know if what this Jeremiah guy says is true because that would be really cool if what John the Baptist says is not behold the ritual vicarious sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world but behold the sufferer, the suffering servant who takes away the sin of the world. That's different. Uh, and I wish I had the knowledge to be able to fact check that one. Uh, Aramaic was not one of the languages I studied, so I can't nerd out on that one. All right. Should we keep going to the next one? Uh, let's see, is there anything else? Um, oh, oh, let's go back. Can we just go back to that slide for a second? Sorry. Um, as I'm going, I got my notes here, right? Uh, so I was thinking in Look, talking about this being caught up in the sufferings of Jesus. Yeah, some of the thoughts I had when I was preparing this is the question that I run into as a parish pastor is how do you how do you actually implement that? You know, if you say that the point is to go out and embrace the sufferings of others, uh, is that saying that we are all to go join doctors with borders and you know go out to the war zone in Syria and Ukraine? and uh, put our lives at risk? Does it mean that we are all supposed to go to the rainforest and throw our bodies in front of the logging machines and let them drive over us? Does it mean that we are all supposed to go out and you know find the most brutal dictator and throw ourselves at him, you know, like I'm gonna go to Russia and somehow uh, stop Putin, uh, you know, is is that what he's saying participation in the sufferings of Christ now i could definitely say that the answer to those examples is yes but practically i'm a parish pastor i sit back and i go okay okay you know that's nice but the world can't function if everybody's throwing themselves against uh the tyrants or maybe it would be like walter wink theologian who writes about nonviolence that he kind of says well, it's because we don't really believe it work. If everybody threw themselves at the Russian tanks, we could stop Putin. I'm not, you know, I'm not quite as certain of that. I think Putin has no problem mowing down all the people in the world. I think he's, he and his idle predecessor, Stalin, had shown that uh, some of those things maybe didn't work, but is that really what it means? I mean, I in my regular life with my job and my family, and you know, is, is my job to leave them behind? and go and, you know, throw myself at the Syrian refugees, even if it means I get kidnapped by ISIS? Uh, or are there ways that we can, you know, live this life of uh, embracing the sufferings of others that doesn't necessarily mean taking up the cause unto death? That's kind of the phrase, the they cause unto death. For Sartre, it's the being unto death. But I think for Jesus it's the cause unto death. Are we all supposed to take up that cause? Is that the only way to be Christian? Is there no more moderate way to do that? Is there no more practical way to embrace the sufferings of others to bring about change in this world and follow and caught up in Christ's sufferings other than these sort of grand gestures? Uh, I don't think Bonhoeffer answers that question. You know, he's embracing it in a theological way. But I do have to say that when we are looking at things like how do we form our identity in our Christian faith, those religious practices, uh, and even some of those simple moral laws and codes, they do help to form us and give us an identity, and they aren't in all bad, and, you know, and so maybe there's a value there that he hasn't understood. I, I have to keep going back and reminding myself that Bonhoeffer lived in a deeply, deeply Christian culture where the church had still saturated everything. People in their practical everyday lives might not have been going to church as much, but that doesn't mean, just because they weren't physically going, that that their thoughts, their minds, their culture wasn't saturated with it. So he could sort of answer, he didn't have to worry about the question of, you know, will a religionless Christianity lead to just no Christianity? Will it lead to just people doing nothing because they don't practice nothing and there's no concrete handles on what it means to follow? Whereas another religion comes in and goes, I got five things, do these five things. Boom, you're done, you're set, you dress like this, you eat like this, you talk like this, you read this. Check, 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 check. And a person knows what they're supposed to do and they know how to follow that. And then here along comes Bonhoeffer, we must allow ourselves to be caught up into the sufferings of the world. What does that mean? The lack of a concrete handle on things is, I would guess, is probably gonna to lead to a lack of anybody doing it. Anybody but a few really bold, unmarried, unemployed outliers who are gonna go and throw themselves at the, at the wolves to, for the sake of the cause. But that's just, again, me coming from a, uh, you know, coming from a parish pastor perspective. All right, now let's get to the next slide. I think it's slide number six. okay this is a big long honking one uh, i'll read through it this is where bonhoeffer starts to go through the bible and give examples that he sees in the bible of following this pattern uh, it's sort of a, a biblical proof text maybe so here we go this being caught up into the messianic sufferings of god in jesus christ takes a variety of forms in the New Testament. It appears in the call to discipleship, in Jesus's table fellowship with sinners, and, con- quote, conversions in the narrower sense of the word, i.e., Zacchaeus, in the act of the woman who was a sinner, Luke 7, an act that she performed without any confession of sin, in the healing of the sick, Matthew 17, in Jesus' acceptance of children, The shepherds like the wise men from the east stand at the crib not as converted sinners but simply because they are drawn to the crib by the star just as they are the centurion of capernaum who makes no confession of sin is held up as a model of faith look at Jairus. jesus loved the rich young man the eunuch acts 8 and cornelius acts 10 are not standing at the edge of the abyss Nathanael is an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile, John 1:47. Finally, Joseph of Arimathea and the woman at the tomb. The only thing that is common to all these is their sharing in the suffering of God in Christ. That is their faith. There is nothing of religious method here. The religious act is always something partial. That's interesting. Faith is something whole, involving the whole of one's life. Jesus calls men not to a new religion, but to life. It's interesting. All right, let's pick this apart a little bit. Because my question I just asked is, what does this concretely look like? And I think Bonhoeffer's trying to answer that. I think I'll leave it up to you to see if you think he really does, or if he's just grasping a little bit, or, you know, making making something that isn't there. Uh, But... What does he say, some explanations, all right. Uh, It is being caught up, is discipleship, right? Jesus calls, we follow, Jesus takes the initiative, we pick it up, so that would be one thing. Uh, But again, we would all have to discern what that looks like for us, right? That's still a little bit abstract. Next one, there we go, I gotta use my other hand. (laughs) Table fellowship with sinners. Right? He hangs out with people outside the fold. What does it mean to be uh, with Christ? It is to each with the sinners and the tax collectors, to share, to deliberately share in fellowship with those who are ostracized. That's something we could do. That's a very concrete thing you can do. I remember when I used to volunteer at the Gospel Rescue Mission. Oh, this is years ago. But one of the things the head chaplain there told the volunteer chaplains was, you know, it'd be really nice if you actually got to know the guys beyond just coming in and preaching, you know, come in for lunch. Well, I took him up on the offer and went in on Thursdays and ate lunch. Uh, And, you know, I don't know if they were, you know, I was no less of a, no more or less of a sinner than anybody else, but it was just a way to kind of catch up and uh, meet with the guys. Some wanted to talk, some clearly didn't. That's your choice. And, uh, but I think the guy had a point that, you know, your message will carry a lot more weight if the guys feel like you're willing to live, be with them and among them rather than above them talking down to them. So table fellowship with sinners. There's something really powerful about putting yourself with others, right? Instead of just talking to them. Okay, what else do we get? Conversions. And he says this in the narrower sense uh, about changing behavior. And he quotes Zacchaeus, which is interesting because You know, we know the story. Zacchaeus was the wee little man. The wee little man was he. Climbed up in the sycamore tree. Uh, Zacchaeus, it never says Zacchaeus really belonged to a different religion. He was Jewish. Uh, He just decided to change his ways. So his conversion was really much more, I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to pay people back. I'm going to stop ripping them off. That was a very concrete conversion, right? I'm just going to stop ripping people off and pay them back there isn't anything there about you know joining doctors with borders and flying around the world uh but and how much better would our world be if everybody in business and government decided not to rip anybody off and pay everybody what they owed Um, so but the point is that it isn't zacchaeus necessarily changing his beliefs now i have no problem with changing beliefs because i don't think that one is going to feel called to be get caught up in the sufferings of christ if one thinks christ is stupid or dumb or not a messiah or made up or whatever, right? There's a certain amount of belief that's presupposed, right? Zacchaeus already grew up in a Jewish culture and that was a part of his identity and his faith and his heritage and it was in the air and he had learned the scriptures and the quotes and practiced all the practices. All that stuff was already there. It was assumed. I think sometimes Bonhoeffer assumes that, whereas in a lot of the world, you can't assume that. You know, to be caught up in the sufferings of Christ kind of implies that you care enough about Christ to get caught up, and that's an initial first step. Okay, what else is it? Number four, he talks about the woman who was a sinner. Now, I'm assuming that he's talking about the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. I went back to Luke 7 to look at that. Um, and it doesn't necessarily say that how much she was a sinner or what that sin was. I think the point was much more that she anointed his feet. And that Jesus didn't run away from her and say, you know, don't touch me you're, you know, I want a woman touching me or, you know, you're not good enough for me or something like that. Um, she anoints his feet. She serves with abandon, which I do think is, okay, so there's something we got there. She gives with abandon, right? She gets on her knees and takes care of someone with abandon. That's something that you could follow. That's something that you could do in a local way, uh, in a concrete way. Right? Again, think about it is what the good we do, not the bad we avoid. Um, five, healing the sick. I mean, come on, who's against that, right? Uh, but healing, you know, can either, if it isn't miracle cures that you're doing and you're not actually a doctor at the hospital or the clinic doing surgeries and treatments, what does healing of the sick mean? Healing of the sick is going to mean things more like spending time visiting the sick or uh, spending time, you know... Checking in on people at the nursing home or providing fellowship and community to people who are sick; those are things that we can do. Those are th- that you do not—it is not something that only an ordained pastor can do. You can call your friend and go and ask them how their day is, and you can go to the hospital and sit there and pray with them. You don't need a four-year graduate degree to do that. Uh, it is very time-consuming, and. You know, there's a sacrifice there, especially for our world. Um, all right, acceptance of the children. I think we're, you know, that, that, that's, nobody's really combating that or arguing against that. The centurion, that's an interesting example. Uh, the centurion has a conversion. Well, the centurion just acknowledges his powerlessness before God, right? His daughter is sick, and he looks at Jesus and says, look, you know, if I tell these guys to, if I tell these guys to jump, they jump. That, you know, they'll follow my orders, but I can't order the sickness away. I need you. So there's a real acknowledgement of Jesus's power in this sense. Uh, there's a humility before God. We can do that. We can acknowledge our powerlessness before God. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but and he says, well, he doesn't do a real confession. That's true. He doesn't say, you know, Jesus, forgive me. I've sinned because I did, you know. Uh, I looked at that Jewish woman as I walked down the street and I had a dirty thought. Um, You know, well, a centurion could probably have a lot bigger things to confess, right? I went into a village and I sacked everybody. Uh, You know, Jesus doesn't say, well, I'll heal you. But first, I need to know that you take sin seriously. And I think the church really, it's the church that worries about people not taking personal sin seriously and insisting on. The confession, I think that's where Bonhoeffer is coming from, is that the church wants to insist on confession because we're worried that people are going to go lax on sin or not take sin seriously enough, right? And if we start saying that people can, you know, repent, that people can, uh, that a conversion can exist without an enumeration of sins, although... Martin Luther established 500 years ago, we don't need to name every sin to have the sin forgiven. But I think that's kind of the worry, and it's more of a church worry. All right, the lo- Jesus loves the young man who did follow him. Okay, love people who don't even follow what you believe in. That, that's something we can do. And then he has this neat line, religious, uh, the religious act is partial, the faith is whole. And that, uh, you know, I would say that doesn't necessarily nullify Religious acts, there's nothing wrong with praying your rosary and doing Hail Marys and Our Fathers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's true, that stuff doesn't involve your whole life. And religious acts can be a substitute for embracing the sufferings of others, right? And I think that's what one of the things Bonhoeffer is so against. And that's what the prophets are against, too. You perform your religious acts. You do your sacrifices the right way. You do your offerings the right way. You avoid the curse words and of the bad foods. And you do all those things, but then you turn around and you won't try to rewrite legislation about debt slavery or predatory lending. And that's where, you know, Jesus gets irritated. And I think that's what the prophets are saying, too, is that if faith faith is to be your whole life, you don't. You can't find a religious chunk of it and put that over in the religion bin, and then have my business side in the business bin where I exploit third world children in my emerald mind. You know, um, so I, I just think that's kind of cool. All right, um, let's go to the next one. Here we go. The question, the question, the million dollar question. We are finally there. But what does this life look like? Oh, gotta get a drink, refuel here. We're coming into the home stretch. What does this life look like? This participation in the powerlessness of God in the world? I will write about that next time, I hope. Just one more point for today. When we speak of God in a non-religious way, we must speak of him in such a way that the godlessness of the world is not in some way concealed, but rather revealed and thus exposed to an unexpected light. The world that has come of age is more godless and perhaps for that very reason nearer to God than the world before its coming of age. Forgive for still putting it all so terribly clumsy and badly as I really feel I am, but perhaps you will help me again to make things clearer and simpler, even if only by my being able to talk about them with you, and to hear you, so to speak, keep asking and answering. I spelled being Bayesian or something like that. Forgive my <laughs> typo. Right? Beigen. The Beigen. Okay. Um, so we finally get there. 12 episodes later, hours later. What does this life look like? Uh, I'll write about it next time. And next time never comes. Next time never comes. Uh, But at that point, he gets shuffled off to an SS prison. The letters disappear. Knowledge of him disappears. But it's worth, you know, laying out the foundation has a real value. And I think there's a, a, he gave enough good stuff in the previous one that if you do, if you do all those things, you're already miles ahead right if you want to know that if someone says what can i do as a christian to really live like christ and you do all those things in that list you're doing a lot right your plate will be full with embracing uh all the sick and the needy and uh, tax collectors etc etc you do all that that's a that's a lot of stuff to do and um But again, that's kind of where we always want to jump to the end. And I think there's a value, too, in not jumping to the end and going, well, what's the bottom line? What is it I have to do? Because that's so much of what the heaven and hell theology is always about. It always makes a bottom line to everything. And it it really makes everything either absolutely worthwhile or totally worthless. Either it is necessary to get you out of hell and into heaven, which makes it absolutely important, Or it doesn't affect heaven or hell, which makes it absolutely unimportant. And so all of our life becomes simply a question of figuring out what I have to do to get my magical golden ticket. And everything that doesn't affect that ticket becomes unnecessary. And so a life of embracing the cross and embracing suffering, there really isn't a limit there. See, that's the thing about heaven and hell theology is that you know, everybody gets to the bottom line. What is the absolute bare minimum goodness I have to do to get in? And I always say, if you're asking that question, you're kind of missing the point. But I see where Bonhoeffer's coming from, and again, why I like this stuff, is that getting caught up in the sufferings of Christ is a work without limit, a service without limit, a sacrifice without limit, there is no point at which i have ever done enough and now i'm done you know uh you know i i avoided that puppy on the street even though it yipped at me and bit at my thing i didn't kick it i wanted to i didn't kick it i'm good i'm into heaven and i think part of what has driven secularism ironically has been heaven and hell because the heaven and hell theology you know once somebody decided well i'm not going to hell then it made everything Jesus said or did utterly irrelevant. And so instead of, hey, I want you to come and join me in embracing this life, it became all, the church became nervous. Well, people won't do, have any personal morals if we don't threaten them with hell, so we better keep hell there. And then when people realized, well, now I don't have to worry about hell, so screw personal morals. And uh, in essence, the church cre- in the West created the problem that we are in, by creating a scenario of an all-in or all-out magical golden ticket heaven or hell theology but take that away kind of like i i think i talked about in a previous one you know the imaginary village where they never had a resurrection and they came in and all they had was jesus and his sufferings and they were really captivated by jesus and his sufferings and following jesus and his sufferings to the cross uh, they didn't want people bringing in the resurrection because they're going to go, oh, now it's going to be all about getting that resurrection or not, right? And that's, that's where Bonhoeffer, I think, is really a good corrective, is that he doesn't, you know, not caring about a metaphysical hell, you know, opens up the door to caring about everything else in the faith. And um, so, any other thoughts here? Uh, Any other thoughts? Um, We must speak of him in such a way that the godlessness of the world is not in some way concealed, but rather revealed. This is that same thing about owning it, right? That, you know, that the world isn't, God isn't somehow secretly behind the scenes playing 3D chess with what's going on, that it really just is godless. Now, the question that comes up which I would ask Bonhoeffer if I, you know, he was back and I was looking at him, is to really ask, okay, so how does your religionless Christianity differ from deism? How does it differ from moralistic deism? Of, you know, again, deism, that's Thomas Jefferson, God made the world, wound it up like a clock, because it was the 1700s, so they, that's where they came up with the theory, right? You had to wind up your clock or charged your phone Uh, right? You know, wound it all up, set things in motion according to the laws of physics in the universe, and then stepped back. How is that different from Bonhoeffer saying, God made the world, then forsook it and abandoned it, and now tells us to go suffering? You know, Thomas Jefferson said, God set up the world, abandoned us, and told us to be moral and ethical. Is the only difference the degree of one's ethics? You know, the distinction between, you know, Jefferson and his understanding of ethics, which we all know was really kind of incredibly self-contradictory, right? Uh, Mr. Freedom and Liberty had an army of slaves on his massive plantation. Uh, And, you know, one could argue that his religiosity, his enlightened religiosity was a very partial thing because there's this humongoid glaring thing uh, that he literally buried under the hill. If you go to Monticello, it's almost disturbingly genius how he sits on top of the hill with his house and has this beautiful lawn and this beautiful view and keeps all the suffering slaves tucked around underneath on the side so they don't spoil his view. It's like, uh, you know, maybe the suffering needed to be exposed to Thomas Jefferson and his buddies a little bit more. Uh, Maybe that might have moved him to a different sense of ethics that wasn't just, again, be a good person, which is kind of what it boils down to. Although, again, he didn't always follow it. But that's what I would ask Bonhoeffer. How is God forsaking us and abandoning us any different than deism? Or is it that, you know, you're implying that God is working in a way, in, in A, exposing the godlessness and the suffering, and B, calling us into it, sweeping us into it, that there is an activity there, and an action, and an agency of God. Uh, but, you know, in, and then my, ne- I guess my next question would be, is, the, is it really biblical what you're saying? Did Jesus really believe that God didn't sort of intervene, uh, and uh, if that, is, is that really what you're saying? Because the very fact of Jesus being there is implying intervening, and if he's healing, then that's intervening, and that's acting, and that's doing something. Uh, are, you know, are you, is God forsaking us? Is that only something that happens at the end? You know? God's with us up to the point of suffering and then walks away, uh, maybe? all questions to ask questions to think about questions to ponder you know but don't let those questions i think keep you from the real big question of what does it mean to follow jesus and to be caught up into his sufferings in the middle of a godless world with no expectation of a heavenly reward no and no fear of a hell what does that mean and um that's a lot to stew on and meditate, but on a Maundy Thursday, which is what today is, which is why there's no, you don't see much behind me, they kind of cleaned off the altar, and um, on a Maundy Thursday as we approach Good Friday, you know, look at that cross, you know, and when Good Friday comes, look at the cross, and instead of saying, wow, that's really good, Jesus, look what you did for me. Look at that cross and say, wow, what does that mean for me to follow that action. Uh, and what does that mean if I am being swept up into the cross and God is forsaking me? Ooh, deep stuff. Anyways, all right. Thank you guys for tuning in, for listening. I hope this, again, as always, I hope this has been helpful and help you see some, a different way, a different way to look at Christianity. I could quote Bonhoeffer all day. I find him insanely insightful. And... Um, so it's been fun to see all the people tuning in. I've gotten emails and people sending me messages and stuff. Feel free to do that. I'm here uh, answering these questions. That's part of what I do. I don't know what the next thing is I will do. I've got to discern that, I guess, uh, and see where the Spirit moves me. But uh, All right. Have a good Holy Week, everybody. and God be with you, and thanks for the ride. Take care.